But, you know, before we get into the book of Genesis, I'd like to have us take a look at a picture together. Would you do that with me? We're going to have a picture up here, and we're going to take a look at this picture. And I want you to take a moment. We're going to cycle through a couple of these to try to figure out what it is. Some of you may recognize the picture. But here we've zoomed in a little bit. We've gotten a little bit closer. Maybe you can see it. Now we get a little bit closer, maybe a little bit clearer still. Maybe you can see it a little bit better. Does anybody know what that is? Maybe you've seen it before. The picture that we're looking at right now was taken on February 14th, 1990, almost 30 years, over 30 years ago. It's a picture from the very powerful cameras aboard aboard the Voyager 1 space probe. And this is the last picture that spacecraft took of its home planet planet Earth. The scientists who were in charge of this mission decided that they would have one last opportunity to catch a picture of their home from 6.4 billion miles away. To give you a little bit of context of the scale of that, that's about as far as Wheeler Sexton and Jordan Beakley run in a week. You know, that's, <laughs> that's about the distance they go. Together, though, combined. Now, that, that's, that's a scale that's unimaginable to us. We can't imagine 6.4 million miles away, but there it is. That's Earth from that distance. The astronomer Carl Sagan had this to say about that picture. This is what he wrote. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited on the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner, how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by that pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck and the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, 
in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Does that make you feel small? Does that make you feel insignificant? Hopeless, maybe? It should. It should. If all we have in this world is our observations of the world around us, then we have no basis for hope. We have no basis for optimism. The vast cosmos, its profound silence, the fact that there's not even another hint of intelligent life out there anywhere, the fact that we live on this small moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And even on this planet, as we zoom in very closely, life is hard. Most eke out a meager existing existence, dying after a few short years in obscurity. Now, we happen to live in an area and in a time and in a culture that wants us to forget that reality. We do as much as possible to try to put it out of our minds, to try to put it aside and forget it. We do it with uh, entertainment and all sorts of distractions. There is pleasure and addiction. There's alcohol and drugs and sex. We make ourselves busy with all sorts of activities. We heap on each other accolade after accolade all in the hopes that we will forget our hopelessness. In most of our lives, even the death that has been so common in every generation is hidden from us. When you go to the supermarket, you picked up your prepackaged meat. You didn't see that animal slaughtered and killed so that you could live. Even the death that we experience in our lives typically happens away from our eyes in a hospital with its sterile walls. Even cemeteries are becoming a thing of the past. We try to put this out of our minds and distract ourselves from our seeming insignificance in the world around us. One of the things that I love about Scripture is that Scripture is very aware of this reality. Scripture does not hide the truth. It does not run from the truth. It describes the world as we experience it, as we see it. In Proverbs, or in Psalm chapter 8, verses 4, the psalmist says this. He says, who is man that you are mindful of him? He's expressing this disbelief that there is a God at all and that he would be taking any interest in some insignificant creature walking around on the earth. In Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16, the psalmist says this. He says, man is like grass. He grows for a season. He flourishes for a little while. And then the wind blows and he withers and he dies. There's a whole book in the Bible that is essentially devoted to this idea. In Ecclesiastes 
chapter 1, we read this. The preacher says this. Solomon writes these words. He says this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not full, filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Do you get the sense? Do you get the picture that's being painted here? And here's the reality. As Christians, this is very important. We must be willing to face the truth. Always. Christians must be willing to face the truth. The world around us screams futility, hopelessness, and insignificance. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is it so? Why is it that way? Why do we feel it? And today, as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, we find out why it is so. We find out. If you've been working through the book of Genesis with us, you, you'll recall back to Genesis chapter 1 where God creates the heavens and the earth, and He creates every type of things in the created order. And on the sixth day of that creation, He creates man. And He creates them male and female, and He creates them to be His image bearers, this special creature that will bear His image to the world. And then He blesses them. He blesses them and he says this to them in verse 28 of chapter 1, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blesses his apex creature, his image bearer, and he gives him dominion over the whole earth. That's the blessing of God. And as we read on in chapter 1, He gives them all the food to eat. He gives them all the plants to eat that will sustain them and that will keep them. In chapter 2, we, we move from kind of this high-level view of God's creation and the perspective changes and we get a more intimate picture of what this creation was like. And we learn in chapter 2 that God creates man and he places him in a garden, in a beautiful garden where grows every plant that is suitable to sustain him, and he brings to the man these animals, and he has the man name them, and he gives the man a mission. So he's given him a paradise, 
And then he gives him a purpose to cultivate that garden. And then he gives him a partner to do it with, Eve, his wife. Now, in that garden, there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a test. If Adam and his wife do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they obey God and and don't do what He forbids them to do, then they will have access forever to the tree of life, which is in the midst of the garden. And there they can work in their paradise, fulfilling their purpose of cultivating that garden with each other as good partners for all of eternity. But if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God tells them, you will surely die. And then we get to chapter 3, and Seth did such a wonderful job last week revealing what happens when they actually have to take that test. Satan comes and he tempts them. The serpent appears to Eve and and he tempts Eve by making the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating its fruit look appealing to her. And when she has been convinced that the food is good to eat and, and good to make one wise, she takes the fruit, she eats it. And she gives some to her husband, and he eats it. And the Bible describes that their eyes are opened. And suddenly they can see their own nakedness. They're aware of their own shame. That's what nakedness tends to symbolize in Scripture is their shame. They can see it very clearly. And we're left hanging after last week wondering what the consequences are going to be. And here's the point as we get into these verses that we're going to look at today. Evil always has consequences. Evil always has consequences. Let's read this section of Scripture, verses 14 through 24, and then we'll talk about it. Look at this together with me. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God 
made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There are consequences. In this section, we read that there are very clear consequences for the serpent, for the woman, for the man, and for the world. Now, we're going to get to the consequences on the serpent in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to start with the woman and the man. I want to start with Adam and his wife. You see, one of the things we just read in chapter 1, as we just looked at, is that before we get to this section where there are consequences, before we get there, we've just read about the blessings of God on these two people. And one of the major themes running throughout all of Scripture are those two things, blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. And those two things are similar to these two categories, God or nothing. Or these two categories, life or death. Blessings and cursings, they are opposites. Blessing equals receiving goodness from God. Receiving God Himself and all that comes with them, whether it's joy, peace, material blessings, prosperity, the love of people around you, relationships with spouse and with friends and with children, all the good things of this world are the blessings of God on your life. And then there's the curse. And what is the curse? It is the removal, the loss of that blessing. That's the curse. It's the loss of blessing, the unwinding of what God has given, the unwinding of the goodness that God has given to you. That's the curse. And here in this section, we begin to see the unwinding of the blessings that God had given to Adam and Eve. We begin to see that very clearly in how He lays out the curse for them. Let's look at verse 16 together and see the the curse that comes upon the woman. Verse 16 says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Do you remember the blessing? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. That's the blessing. This beautiful task of filling all of God's creation with His image. It's a joyous thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that any parent knows we still see the wonderful, beautiful echoes of in our own children. The blessing of children. 
and of new life. What an incredible thing. What an incredible blessing given specifically here to the woman through whom all new life comes. What a wonderful thing that is now marred by this terrible judgment. That even though the woman will continue to bear children, in this blessing there will be great pain. You know, I think we live in a time where we are very fortunate that in our age, we are able to reduce the pain and the suffering of childbearing. Now, I was still there when my children was born. I know it is not easy. It is not easy. It's very difficult. You, you see a woman go into labor and you know this is a very difficult process. As a matter of fact, historically speaking, it has been a process that has been very dangerous for women. Even in 2015, over 300,000 women died from some kind of complication from childbearing. I didn't see any statistics of the, of the difficulty for men, but I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure they're out there. This is very difficult for women. And you go back centuries before, and it was very common for women to die in giving birth. The beautiful gift of childbearing, in some sense, is lost and marred by the curse. But that's not the only thing the woman loses. There's also the loss of the great partnership that God had given. We continue in chapter, in verse 16, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That word desire that we read in there is the word for control. Just one chapter over in Genesis chapter 4, God says to Cain, as he's contemplating murdering his brother, he says to Cain, sin is crouching at your doorstep and its desire is for you. It wants to control you. And that same word that is used there is the same word that is used here in Genesis chapter 3. Part of the curse is this broken relationship between husband and wife, between man and wife, where the woman here will seek to control her husband. And you remember the blessing in chapter 2 when God made Adam his wife. He said, this is your helper. She is here to help you in your mission as you serve me, as you cultivate my garden. And we see here in chapter 3 the breaking of that partnership that no longer are these two people who are seeking to help each other. They are two people who are seeking their own interests. They want to rule over each other. I love weddings. I love going to weddings. I, I love being a part of them. It's that one occasion where you can see a relationship very clearly and see it in its most ideal state. There's the husband and there's the wife giving commitments 
and statements of eternal love for one another, commitments to help each other, the the vows typically sound of this great romantic moment where they are going to just passionately give themselves to each other for the rest of their marriage, right? But then there's the next morning, right? Or in my case, because I'm a, a, a very sinful person, there's that very afternoon, You know, my wife and I, were at our our wonderful wedding, a beautiful wedding. We have this great ceremony. We're having this amazing time dancing with all our friends late into the evening. But you know what? I didn't want to dance late into the evening. I wanted the evening to continue with the two of us alone. So even there, on the day of our wedding, you see me and my selfishness fraying that relationship. And isn't that the the way it is? Two selfish people coming together. A fight over headship. A fight over control. Now God has settled the dispute about who has headship in the home. He has given the men, the husbands, the headship in their home to lay down their life for their family, to serve God by serving their family and to lay down their life for their family, and He has given the wife to help as He dies for His family, as He lays down His own self-interest for His family. The wife is called to lay down her self-interest for him as his helper. But that's been broken. What you have is two selfish people serving their own self-interest. So the, the woman loses the glory of childbearing without pain. And she loses the partnership with her husband. And then he continues with Adam. What was the great blessing that he gave to Adam? Take dominion over the earth. Take my garden and cultivate it. Make it beautiful. Make it grow. This is your kingdom. Bear my image here. That's the blessing to Adam. And what we see in verses 17, 18, and 19 are the loss of that dominion of the cursing of that kingdom. The ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. Instead of the earth giving in to Adam, instead of his dominion being able to take control over the earth, the earth frustrates him. He still gets his bread, he still provides for his family, By the growing of bread and by the the cultivating of the planet of the earth. But that earth frustrates his efforts by growing thorns and thistles amongst the crop. By making it difficult for him to provide. So for the man in his attempts to take and subdue the earth, there's only frustration. There's only difficulty. And I know most of us can identify with that. 
I know most of us, all of us who, who work, who go out into the work and who try to provide for our families, who try to earn a living, we sense the frustration in that. We feel it. And throughout most of the world, you know, in our age, again, we have some advantages. We have some advantages. We have some, some prosperity and wealth in our area that is not common. Throughout most of the world and throughout all, most of human history, people have sought on a daily basis just to earn enough for their daily bread. Jesus' prayer in the Gospels that give us this day our daily bread is a prayer that most people have sought to pray all of their lives as they try to find enough, try to earn enough just to get to eat. And if you have traveled outside of this country, outside of this region, and even to parts of our country, you know people who work for their daily bread. And maybe you do too. Maybe you do too. And we find that our work and our labor is a constant struggle marked by frustration and failure. I think everyone who, who goes to work on a consistent basis knows that most of your days are not pure joy. They're difficult. Again, to show you what a... Uh, Terrible husband I can be at times. I remember early in our marriage, my wife came home and, and we were talking about the difficulties we were both facing at work. And she was giving me some, some of the frustrations that she was facing. And I remember the comments that I made to her. And I said, you know, you know, of course, I'm a wise guy and I like to put things in perspective. You know, Jess, a lot of people spent their entire lives working in a coal mine or something like that. At least we don't have to do that. She did not like that response. <laughs> that was not good perspective. Because all of us feel that. We go to work. It doesn't matter if we're in a coal mine. It doesn't matter if we're in an office. It doesn't matter if we're a school teacher. It doesn't matter. We face frustrations at our work. We face difficulties at our work. It's tough and it's difficult. And thorns are thistles, and thistles are constantly rising up to frustrate us. And that's part of the curse. But that's not the only curse that we feel is a loss of dominion, a loss of control. The world does not yield itself to us. There's also a curse on the world it itself. In verses 22 and 23, we read of God saying, man has become like one of us. We are going to remove him from our paradise. He now knows evil. And so what he's going to see is evil fully realized. No longer will he exist in this garden of my blessings. Now he will be sent out into the world where he will return to the dust from which he came. There's going to be a loss of paradise. And we know that. We know that as beautiful as the world is at times, as, as wonderful as God's creation is, it is no paradise for us. And we experience 
the loss and the, the death of people where they return to the dust from which we came. And the thing is, what we realize here is that God places a guard at the gate. At the end of chapter 3, not only has man been removed from the paradise, there is a guard put there to block the way. And although guards are certainly put in places to keep people out, here he is also put there to keep people in. You see, this is our prison of sorts. This world, this pale blue dot, this moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam where there is nothing but vanity upon vanities is in that sense a prison for us where we await our impending death sentence. There is no access to the tree of life. We will all die. And we know that that's going to happen because of our disobedience. We will see the final consequences of our evil played out ultimately in our death. And the question is, is the question that Carl Sagan raised there at the end of his little speech. Is there any hope for salvation from the outside? In light of the curse, is there any hope that there is something out there that can save us? Is there anything that can help us escape the apparent reality of the hopelessness of the world in which we live? Now, here's the good news. God always mingles grace and goodness with the consequences that He gives to us. We skipped over a lot of verses here as we were talking through the curse, but in this text, there is hope. There is a great deal of hope. It begins in verse 20. The man calls his wife Eve. I don't know if you didn't realize this by now, but up until this point, she has been just the nameless wife. Now she receives a name, Eve, which means the bringer of life. She is still in the pain of childbearing, going to give life to the world. Women have this incredible role in our world of bearing each one of us. All of us are here because of a woman who has given us life, who God has used to bear us to life. And not only that, this becomes really important to the curse upon Satan. A couple weeks ago when we were talking about the story of man, I described it as a story as of dust to glory. If there's any way to describe the story of the serpent, it's the opposite. It's from glory to dust. We read that in verse 14 where God says to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have deceived Eve and, and Adam, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
As Seth talked about last week, here was this magnificent creature that God had created. The way it's written in the Hebrew when it talks about the serpent is as this shining one, this magnificent one who comes and, and through his, his light is able to deceive Eve. And God throws him down and casts him down into the ground. And his curse is even worse than our curse. There is no redemption for the serpent. But it goes on, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this story, there is this great conflict that arises between the seed of the woman. She's going to give birth to children and generation after generation, her seed, her righteous offspring will be in conflict with the serpent. God has not cast off His people entirely. He still uses us in the great cosmic war with His enemy. And the final resolution of that conflict will be the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. We are part of that great cosmic struggle with the deceiver. God continues to use us for that purpose. Carl Sagan in the, in the article that I just quoted said this, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. And that is very true. And it is in a small corner of that very small stage in Bethlehem of Judea that a young woman named Mary gives birth to a son, the offspring of the woman. And it is in that moment, in the birth of Jesus to Mary, that the curse begins to be rolled back. See, God uses not just a small stage in a vast cosmic arena, He uses the smallest corner of that stage for the turn of the tide in this cosmic struggle. Jesus is the reverse of the curse. When we first see Jesus in His ministry, the first thing that we see is Him being driven out into the wilderness to be tempted. And there He's confronted by Satan, and as He's confronted by Satan, He receives a tempting just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. He's in the wilderness with nothing. They were in a garden with everything. When He's tempted, He defeats the temptations with the Word of God. He knows what His Father has said, and He is able to overcome the deceptions of Satan by listening to His Father. And as He defeats Satan in that temptation, as He passes the test that our parents could not pass, that quite frankly, we don't pass, suddenly, the whole world the whole creation recognizes its king. The whole world begins to recognize its king. And as you see Jesus go along in his ministry, he's able to do these incredible things. He's able to subdue the world. 
and take dominion over it. And we see all kinds of examples from the first miracle that he does where he's at the wedding at Cana. And he has some vats of water and he's able to change the chemical composition of that water and turn it into wine. The world obeys him. The world sees its king. He takes a couple fish and loaves of bread and is able to feed 5,000. The world knows him. The world sees its king and it yields to him. He's able to walk upon the water and the water, he doesn't sink. The cosmos, the creation knows its creator and it obeys him. He subdues it. He calms the storm with a word. The cosmos knows its king. It sees the image of God in him and it obeys. He subdues it. The lame walk when he heals them. The sick are healed and the disease is driven away. Demons flee at his arrival. And the dead rise and come up from the grave. The creation knows its king. And Jesus goes to the cross. And there at the cross, fallen man, those of us who haven't passed the test, put him to death. Malice and hatred is poured out upon Christ on the cross. The plot of the servant to kill the Son of God is put into action through sinful men. And the curse, the results of the curse, death at its fullest, is visited upon Christ at the cross. All the death and destruction that we deserve is given to Him at that moment. But creation knows its King. And death could not hold him. And in his resurrection, he crushes the head of the serpent. And Satan is defeated. And at the end of the gospel, he says this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have dominion. I have subdued all things. And he tells us this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. He commands us to go and preach the gospel. And as the gospel is preached... There is new life. As the gospel of preach, there is new life that comes to those who hear it. We come into this world through a great labor and with much pain in our first birth. We enter the kingdom of God. We are born again in peace and in joy through the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. And finally, the one verse that we have not gotten to in Genesis chapter 3 is this. 
There's this little verse in chapter 21 that says this, and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, God clothed Adam and Eve. In this singular verse here, we see God's provision for His people. They had tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves. God clothes them by taking the life of something else and giving it for them so that they might have clothes to cover their shame. And in that image, there is a foreshadowing of Christ's life for ours, of God's provision for us, and God clothing us, clothing us in our shame, not in animal skins, but in His righteousness. In our shame, God has clothed us with His righteousness. As we read through Genesis, it's, it's impossible not to see all the little threads in every part of the first three chapters of Genesis, that when you begin to pull them, you're pulling through entire sections of Scripture. It's setting up, foreshadowing, preparing you for everything that comes later in Christ. So here's what I'm going to close with. It's this. It's this question. Do you know your King? Do you know your King? All of creation knows its King. It can see the image of, Christ, of God in Christ. It knows that the fullness of the deity dwells in Him. But do you see it? Or do you still think you're the King? Do you still want to live life your way? If so... All that is left to you, or to any of us, is the curse. The blessing is for those who by faith trust Christ, because He is the King, and He is the only one who deserves the blessing. Most of us, when I counsel people, and I've had the opportunity to counsel a lot of people who have been caught in sin. Most people, when they have been caught in a sinful situation, when they've seen their own evil in their own hearts, when they've come to grips with that, we tend to, I know I do, start to look inward. I'm tempted to become consumed by self-pity, delusionment, and despair. But what I would call you to and what I counsel people to that are caught in that is to not look inward is to look to Christ. The one blessing of the curse is that through the curse and rightly understanding who we are and the result of our sin is that we can rightly understand who Christ is and His kingship. And as people who have been confronted by our own sin and the evil within us, we are the ones in the best position to proclaim the worthiness of Christ because of what He has done for us. So as you consider, as you leave here today and you consider this world that we live in, that dot where we live out our existence, remember this, everyone that you ever know lives here. Everyone you ever loved lives here. 
and they need to hear about Jesus. They need to know the Christ. He entered the world on this small cosmic stage and became a man, and he spilled his own blood for you. All of our posturings and our imagined self-importance are challenged by Christ. He is important. He is significant. And He has saved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are merciful. You are good. And You have saved us. Lord, in You there is all blessing. There is all goodness. Every good thing that we have ever received, we have received from Your hand. Lord, we know that as we look, there is great danger that we will lose it all. And the worst of it all is that we would lose You. Lord, I pray that as we look that squarely in the face, as we see the danger of the curse, as we see the, the darkness of the curse, of the loss of Your blessing, pray that we would face that truth, that that's what we deserve. Lord, but I also pray that You would give us grace and mercy, that You would turn us from the curse to the cross so that we might see the work of Your Son and trust in Him and place our faith in Him and receive the blessing forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.